Has there ever been a moment in your life where you've looked back on it, on a very particular moment, you said, wow, that was the moment that changed everything for me? Or has there ever been a time when, in retrospect, you realize, you know, if that one little moment had never happened, then my life would be on a completely different track? Or have you ever considered what life would look like had you taken that job? Or if you didn't take that job? Or what maybe your relational dynamic with someone would look like if you had responded differently to them or forgiven them or moved beyond your issues and just ahead? Have you ever considered how things would be different? Have you ever uh, fought for what you believed in uh, instead of say, you know, caving to societal pressure and you said, man, if I hadn't just stood up for what I believed in, how would my life have been different now? Have you ever accidentally joined a band because I have, twice actually, um, and, and it's two very specific times and two very pivotal moments in my life where I accidentally joined a band. The first time was just a scheduling error, so I found out over summer break, it was middle school time, you know, we get our, our schedules in the mail, and uh, I, I see the counselors put me in band class, which I just was not into. It was absolutely not going to happen. So I find out, okay, I need to go to the counselor. It's summertime. I need to go and switch my schedule. So I go in, find out that the only other class that's offered in the same kind of window is football. And uh, if you knew what seventh grade Jeremy looked like, you would understand why the counselor put me in band and not football in the first place. But nonetheless, I was not interested in being in band. I was going to be in football, and so we got that switched over before school even started, and I joined the football team. Uh, we practiced for the first two weeks, and guys, I have to tell you, I was crushing it, like so good at football, uh, like unbelievable, so much so that just two weeks into school, my coach actually pulls me aside for a meeting where, like, he's going to bump me up to varsity. Like, like I'm going to be the very first seventh grade boy to be on the eighth grade team, like, and I just know, this is what he's going to tell me. Uh, so he sits me down for this conversation. He looks at me. I remember he asked me, he says, hey, uh, Jeremy, do you like football? And I say, like, oh, coach, I love football. Football's the best. And he says, yeah, confused. Uh, but are you having a good time? And I just told him, of course I'm having a good time. I'm having a blast. I love football, coach. I love it. It's what I want to do for the rest of my life. I can't wait to be on the varsity team. And he says, but have you ever thought about choir? And I said, no, I don't want to be in choir. I just got out of band. I don't want to be in choir. I want to be in football. That's what I want to do. And he says, well, we'll talk to the counselor tomorrow. We'll get you switched over to choir instead. And just like that, <laughs> bewildered, Coach Tobias, who I hope is listening. He is not. But Coach Tobias, if you're out there, just know, you putting me in choir changed my entire life. And really... Even before that, the more insignificant moment of being put accidentally in band was just like a little blip on the radar. But without that, I wouldn't even be here. Everything would be different about my life. Everything would be different about my life had I not accidentally joined a band. The second time I joined a band on accident, uh, I was in college, and uh, there was this guy from this place. I'm trying to be cautious now. This guy from this place just south of Dallas, we'll say, and, uh, and he sang with this terrible fake British accent, um, and he, he had a band, and he did, this, he did music all the time, and at one point he said, hey, Jeremy, I wrote this awesome... No, no, I'm not going to make fun of him. He, uh, he, uh, he said, I wrote this awesome song. There's like this little Coldplay-inspired you know, melody line in there. I heard you play piano. Can you just like play the line for me? So I play the line. He's like, great, you're in the band. And I was like, I didn't know this was an audition. Um, and so I, so I was in the band now. Uh, and, and I played that little you know, Coldplay line all the time. And uh, I went to seminary. In seminary, you have to be in a chapel service, you know, uh, where you just you know, get, get preached at all the time. And, uh, and, and I remember one time, we, he did the, uh, we did the new song, the song that he had written. And so I was playing music during the chapel service at, at my seminary school. And so I'm sitting there, I'm playing the piano, we get done with the song, I go sit down, and our guest speaker that day for uh, the chapel service was Bobby Harrell, um, who I'd never heard of before in my life. 
he gets up there, he preaches about missions, um, and he finishes up, and he, I remember very specifically, he's like doing kind of an invitation moment at the end of the service, and he says, where's that piano boy? And I'm like, man, if I hadn't joined this band. So he yells at me, he says like, get up here and play I Surrender All. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, I know that song, but I do not know it on piano. Um, so I get up there, and I just start playing a song that kind of sounds vaguely familiar to I Surrender All. Um, and I'm playing it. It's fine. We do that. But what happened in the end, I mean, the, the truncated version of that story is that led to an internship at Cornerstone. That led to a, a part-time job at Cornerstone. That led to me being one of your pastors here at Cornerstone and where you've been stuck with me for 12 years. <laughs> And, and it's all because I accidentally joined a band. Um, twice. Because there are sometimes these moments in your life where, you know, something that just seems so insignificant. And so it's like, you don't even think about when it's happening. It's more of like just an inconvenience. It just is like a thing. But without that little thing, everything about your life would be different. Uh, there's frequently these tiny little moments in everyone's story that seem inconsequential to the big picture, but then, in the end, they end up changing everything about the story. Um, I know that Pastor Bobby said that I was preaching out of Ezekiel or something else. He's wrong. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, every, week that I, every person that I talked to this week, I said, oh yeah, I'm studying for this sermon on Haggai. Um, and they're like, I have no idea who that is. Um, and it's like, yeah, because to you and to me, before I started studying for this, he's kind of an inconsequential moment, I thought. It's just like one of those little books that you skip over because it's only two pages long, and you don't really pay attention to it. It's just like a, a blip in the big story. Um, but Haggai's story is largely ignored, but still significant. And without Haggai's story, the entire course of God's people would be different. Without what seems to us to be inconsequential and just like a thing that we flip by, let's be honest, that we scroll by, um, if it wasn't just like a little thing, we, we'd think nothing of it. Um, I had someone ask me like a couple of days, like, is that a man or a woman? It's like, it, it's a man, but even still, Haggai is an important and critical part to the story of God's people. Um, at the same time, what, what it does, it encompasses this kind of like big shift in the history um, of our faith. Without Haggai's involvement, the entire course of God's people would look different. What happens is that a tiny moment is so often overlooked that it's integral to the whole restoration of God's people after their exile, which is what Pastor Harold's been talking to us about over the past few weeks. Uh, he's been expertly taking us through the book of Ezra, and Ezra is it's kind of a multifaceted story that overla he put up that big chart where it overlaps with other books of the Bible. We've learned about uh, Zerubbabel and about kind of his charge and his involvement in the rebuild of the temple. Um, we studied that. The story of Haggai kind of happens right in the middle of all that. And Haggai, the book, is actually a collection of four prophetic sermons that God gives to Haggai for the people of Israel. So congratulations, you get four sermons for the price of two over the next two weeks. So hopefully, hopefully it works out for us. Um, what's happening is people like Ezra and Zerubbabel and even Nehemiah are listening to the words of these prophets like Haggai. And it's the words of Haggai that motivate them, who challenge their priorities, and who give them the push that they ultimately need to finish the story that God's given them. So, what Haggai's story tells, it tells the story of the Israelite exiles returning home from their Babylonian captivity and then eventually rebuilding the temple. So again, we're kind of going backwards from the story of Zerubbabel, but it's important, you'll see why for a little bit. Um, for the sake of clarity, we have to move backwards and kind of reset the stage again. So if you remember, the Babylonians enter Jerusalem, they completely destroy it completely destroy it. God's people have been completely overtaken by the Babylonians. And this is an important part of the story. The temple in Jerusalem is in complete ruin. It's completely annihilated. 
the tactic that the Babylonians used most of the time that they captured people was they would go in, they would look specifically for the young people because they, were, they had the most life ahead of them. They had the most moldability. So they would find the young people specifically and assimilate them into the culture of Babylon with the intention of overriding the culture of God. So they say, if we can just take these young people, um, then not only can we you know, have, have them on our side and kind of get them from within, but we can also erase their culture. It's not just about destroying, it's about erasing. We can reprogram them. And in many ways, they are successful, which is kind of what we've been talking about the past several weeks. The people of God have lost their identity in him, and they have lost it not to, you know, anything, you know, just casual. They're losing their identity to continuous idolatry and self-serving lifestyles away from God. But they are God's people. And so they might lose sight of their God-given culture, but there's always this you know, spirit-led pull of God to re- return back to healthy union and restoration with him. So while they're in captivity, they pray and they wait and they keep praying and they wait for the moment that they can be freed from their bondage. This is where we see God's people wandering through a period of exile for about 70 years, just longing for the day that they're able to go back to their home in Jerusalem. They long for the day that they can return back to the temple, which had been completely destroyed, and back into God's holy presence instead of in the hands of their enemies. So finally we reach 539 B.C., and the people's prayers are answered. This is where Haggai comes into play. After all that exile, after all that uh, messing with the culture and trying to destroy it and erase it like the temple, this is where we land. They've been allowed to return back home. The Babylonian Empire is defeated by Persia, led by King Cyrus the Great. And Cyrus's approach to leadership is kind of to respect the Babylonian culture. He's trying to be a good guy. And so it means that the incarcerated Jews can return back to their homeland with kind of the asterisk of, and take your culture back with you. So go back to where you came from. It's all good. I'm the good guy. And in his projection of being the good guy, he not only sends the Jews back home uh, in their freedom, he also sends them back home with the funds that are necessary to actually rebuild the temple. So their prayers have been answered, and the stage is set for this grand comeback of God's people, but the temple still remains in ruins. We've been studying through the book of Ezra, like I said, and these events just kind of overlap with the story there. God sends his people, the prophet Haggai, to spur on their work of rebuilding his temple. And that's our setting. Let's read uh, from the book of Haggai together, starting in verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Sheatil, the governor of Judah, and Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. The Lord of armies says this, These people say, The time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? No, the Lord of armies says this, Think carefully about your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. The Lord of armies says this, Think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber, and build the house, and I will be pleased with it. And be glorified, said the Lord. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Because my house still lives in ruins, while each of you is busy with his own house. So, on your account, the skies have withheld the dew and the land its crops. I have summoned a drought on the fields and on the hills, on the grain, new wine, fresh oil, and whatever the ground yields on people and animals and on all that your hands produce. 
God's people are finally home after longing and waiting and praying for their return. They're finally free from their captivity. They've been delivered back to their freedom, but one disconnect remains, and that is that the temple is not being rebuilt. After all that time, all that time away from God's presence, they've come home and they've not done the one thing that would fully restore their connection to God. See, the temple's meant to be God's house, but even more importantly, it's meant to be his dwelling place, the place his people could have full access to him. And his people, wrapped up in the busyness of their own lives, have abandoned any attempt to restore it. Verse 2 again says, the Lord of armies says this, these people say, the time has not yet come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. The Israelites are operating at a pace and within a schedule that is perpendicular to God's plan for them. God wants his temple to be rebuilt. And his people argue that the time hasn't come yet. Well, when would it come then? And at what point would it be appropriate to begin the rebuild? They've got just a long list of things that need to be accomplished now that they're home. They want to build their houses. They want to harvest their fields. They have to supply for the needs of their family. They have to go and create jobs. They want to go earn wages and restart an entire economy. And nowhere on that list is God's actual vision for them. They're more concerned with the restoration of their own lives that they've neglected the restoration of their relationship with God. See, God's people are operating on this perpendicular plan. Their lack of urgency to restore their earthly connection to God actually points to a much greater and graver issue, and that's this. They've just come out of this long period of time without God's presence, so much so that now they've become accustomed to it. They're used to it. They now face spiritual stagnation, and their lack of immediate familiarity with God has pushed his priorities all the way down on their list of what to do. They say, well, the time just hasn't come yet for the temple to be rebuilt. Being fully restored with God just isn't really a pressing need right now. Well, recreating a, a space for God's presence isn't really one of our priorities. We'll get there eventually, but the time hasn't come yet. And you can imagine how frustrating this apathy towards spiritual closeness is to God. His people have been saved from their bondage, an extended bondage, a time of exile. He saved them from that, and they don't really care when they fully restore union with him. Surely they'll get around to it eventually, but right now it's just fine remaining in ruins. It'll just sit there. It'll still be there. We'll get to it. It's just not a priority for us right now. They are spiritually apathetic and stagnant. And what's sad is, in all honesty, I don't think they mean to be. I don't think it's intentional. I don't think anyone consciously woke up and decided to neglect the will of God. It just kind of happened. They were so used to being without God that it didn't even register that it should be a top-tier priority for them. They were just used to his absence. What a scary thought. That being so used to being distant from God that it doesn't even register anymore. Being so consumed with the to-do list of your life that it just doesn't even register to us. That God isn't even on that list. Being so passive with the protection of your salvation that you don't consider the purpose of your salvation. And again, what's sad is I don't think any of us mean to be that way. We just kind of fall into this cycle of spiritual apathy while the temple remains in ruins. If you've been saved, you have accepted the most incredible and miraculous gift of God, but you were saved with intention. You were saved with purpose. And relying on God to do all of the work before you taper off into an autopilot zone of inactivity isn't going to help further anyone's kingdom except your own. 
I'm reminded of David's response to his falling away from spiritual closeness with God. So the prophet Nathan comes and he confronts him about his blatant and unjust immorality. David makes this prayer as his response. He says, Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. This should be our prayer every day. Every day. Wake up and ask God for the restoration of the joy that comes with your salvation. Ask him to grant your spirit the willingness that you need to trust in his sustenance and then rely on him as preeminent and prioritized in your life. Otherwise, you're just going to get stuck in this cycle of routine where your schedule and your tasks and your to-dos outweigh the reliance that you have on the God who saved you with purpose and with intention. And this is the situation of the Israelites. They used to be blocked by soldiers and captivity and death and uh, governmental forces and destruction and exile against them. And now they're only blocked by their own apathy and distraction. Their lives have kind of gone back to a semblance of comfort and normality. And they've become stuck in their own cycle of self-serving motivation. God says this in 8 and 9. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? Because my house still lies in ruins. Well, each of you is busy with his own house. God answered the prayers of his people when he delivered them into safety and brought them home. And they had great expectation of a bountiful and a prosperous reset on their lives. And yet they were met with ruined harvest and the disappointment of the reality that stood before them because the choices that they made in the re-engagement of their lives were for their lives. And it didn't turn out well. The answer is given to them immediately when they're like, why is this happening? God says, because the house of God still lies in ruins. You're working busily to restore your own houses. My house is still in ruins. Even more specifically, the people of God, having been restored in freedom, are now in pursuit of their own comfort instead of yearning for and working toward time with the God who is faithful to save them. The temple that they just forgot to rebuild was meant to be the place where God's presence dwelled for the sake of their access. For their sake, God wanted to dwell with them. This is the place where heaven meets the things of earth. And in this divine overlap, the people of God could be in his presence, and yet the ruins remained. Israel had returned back to their homeland, but they would never be at peace until they reestablished their spiritual home to experience God's fullness once again. You've come into a place where God has rescued you from your past. He's rescued you from your baggage, from your mistakes, from your trauma, from a life that's lived solely for your sake. And he's granted you new life through the salvation of Jesus Christ. And some, many of us, have responded to that homecoming with an expectation of prosperous living only to be met with disappointment. And why? I think the answer is the same. Because the house of God still lies in ruins while the people work busily to restore their own houses. Because we've responded to God's salvation with futile attempts to build up our own kingdom without fully investing in the advancement of his. But what we've done is we've neglected God by neglecting his work. We've gone from serving the God who made all things to serving the things that he made. We know Jesus, but we're missing the fullness of his presence because we aren't walking in the depth of the journey that he invited us to follow him on. He wants to dwell with his people. He wants to give us access to him, but the temple lies in ruins. The people's investment was in the wrong place. While they were off building their houses, they neglected to build a spiritual home. Verse 4 says, Is it a time for you yourselves 
to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Uh, We just returned back from a trip to Nepal a few weeks ago. And one of the layovers is in Bangkok, Thailand. And if you've ever been to Thailand, you know uh, everything is just so ornate in nature. Uh, everything's just like covered in idols and, and uh, like shrines and, and gold and, and sculpture. And uh, it's like they want to, to go over the top with proving that they, um, you know, care deeply about their faith. Uh, I see this especially in like Buddhist and Hindu temples. Here's an example um, where you look at it and just everything is completely covered. But I want you to look specifically at the walls here. The, you know, the ceilings are like 30 feet high. Um, but all over the walls, they're covered with artwork and images of story and folklore that kind of outline the history of their faith. The walls themselves tell a story. This is all over uh, the, the Eastern world, where these murals are purposefully designed to spread the news of their faith. I also think about when you go to the Vatican City, you walk into the Sistine Chapel, you look up, you see Michelangelo's mural covering the ceiling. When you think of it, you probably imagine God's finger pointing to Adam's and touching. Also, I zoomed in. You're welcome. Uh, This is what you think of, you know, the the fingers touching. Representing the communion and the, the connection that God has to humanity. But in reality, the zoomed out moment is actually just like one portion of a greater story. Each of these panels tells a different part of the story of our faith. He purposefully designed the ceiling in its entirety, this series of nine pictures outlining of, you know, the creation of the world to God's relationship with his creation to the creation's fall away from him. This is, you know, when we just think of God and Adam, that's just one little part. This is a whole story that the, that the ceiling is telling. And the ceiling isn't even the majority of the artwork that you'd see. The whole thing is just littered with picture and art and mural detailing the story of our faith. I mean, famous artists at the top of their craft, people like Botticelli, Rosselli, Raphael, all of them have their work represented on the walls and on the tapestries. And each piece of piece of artwork represents a different piece of the story. One will tell the life of Moses. One will tell the acts of the apostles. One will tell the life of Christ, and on and on and on. I even think about stained glass windows in America. I know that we look at that and we get uncomfortable because we're scared of Catholics, but but also you go into their buildings and their facilities and they are actively using the walls that hold the building up to tell the story of the faith. I mean, you, you see things like, I mean, this is the story of Christmas. You look and you see, you know, the, the apostles, each in a window, telling the story of how they were martyred and killed for the sake of the gospel. You see, you know, the crucifixion in the, in the windows. You see the glorious resurrection of Christ in the windows. And I use those examples because all throughout time, in every place and culture, people have used the walls of their religious spaces to illustrate the story of their faith. It's just kind of a common thread through all the time. And we are not immune to that. We've traditionally used our walls as ways to spread the story of the faith. So then in verse 4, when it says, Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Haggai isn't like condemning wood paneled houses. Like, you're fine. Uh, Don't worry about that. In this time, wood paneling in houses was unusual. It was luxurious and special. Paneling was associated with the temples that they would build up to honor God because they were canvases that would tell his story. They were opportunities to outline the truth of Scripture to the people. And at one point, the former temple in Jerusalem was completely covered in its own panels, etched with images of God's creation and the angels and the things of heaven and of earth. The temple was made to be an image of God's connection with the people, but it was also meant to be a tangible connection of God to his people. Also, it pointed forward to a time when God's home would be found in the hearts of his people, where you are all now. A time when a visit to the temple isn't necessary to find a connection with your Savior. God now resides in the hearts of his people, and you are living temples. 
containing the very Spirit of God who dwells within you. And yet, the walls holding up the temple of our hearts are often covered with panels that tell the story of us, neglecting to display the story of God's work to build us. Paul asked this uh, question in kind of a rhetorical way to the church in Corinth. Don't you know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? So I'd beg yourself to ask the same question then. Don't you know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God now lives in you, whose story is painted on the walls of your temple, whose life is portrayed across the stained glass of your heart? Don't you know that that's who you've been called to be? So instead of restoring the temple to its full glory, to tell the full story of God's redemption and salvation, the people are instead putting the luxury of panels in their homes. The thing that distracted them away from fulfilling God's purposes, you know, building their own homes, that's now also pulling away the resources that they need in order to accomplish the purposes of building God's house. As a side note, this is like, over here now. Uh, it's incredible how often the things of the physical nature are affected by the spiritual nature. Because they were minded away from God's purpose for them spiritually, they were unable to fulfill God's purpose physically. And uh, I think you'd be shocked how often that happens for us. But back over here, God isn't just concerned about the rebuilding of the building. That's not like the main thing. Yes, he wants his temple rebuilt. But that's kind of just a thing his purpose is so much kinder and more wonderful than that. God wants so much more than just the physical building. What he wants is to restore the spiritual connection with his people. He wants to be with his people again. He wants them back because he loves them. Haggai is challenging the people to realign their priorities to the things of God. He's telling them to shift your perspective to a purposeful place of worship. If you say you love God, and if you say you love the things of God, and if you say you are committed to the ways of God, while at the same time putting your primary investment in the things and the ways of yourself, then you're falling victim to the same exact situation that God himself warns these newly returned exiles. Verse 6, you've planted much, but harvested little. You eat but you never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. They are working to rebuild a culture, and they're not seeing the reward of their labor because they have neglected to rebuild the spiritual culture as their primary objective. You might be looking around and taking inventory of your own life, and all the physical blessings in your world, but notice that you are spiritually bankrupt? And maybe that's because your response to a life lived in salvation is to take the blessing of God for your benefit instead of his. Too often, we, we try to overlay spirituality on top of a foundation built on self-centeredness. And this is actually this is a cultural fact not even just like a religious thing. It's a cultural fact. We are pushed and urged to live lives that satisfy and find worth in self. And we build everything around this premise that we are so worthy and righteous and we are the authors of our own truth and our own identity. But can you see the problem that arises when we try to put up Christian wallpaper to cover the walls of our heart when it's already painted with the picture of our face? We're just covering it up. It's not really truly built on anything other than ourselves. Our response to the salvation that God gives us should be a complete restart in purpose, a complete restart in intention and investment. A life that was once lived for your own glory should be torn down and rebuilt again to glorify God alone, which is why we find in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. In Christ, we have the opportunity to display a new creation. So stop focusing on the old. It's passed away. Don't miss it. It's gone. 
Don't dwell on who you used to be or where you used to find fulfillment. That's not who you are. That's not the, the new person that God's created you to be. Jesus tells us himself in the book of Matthew where to put our focus. He says, so don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be provided for you. Don't fall into this trap of anxiety where you believe that you are the sole person responsible for your providence and your success and fulfillment. That's a trap. Instead, seek the kingdom of God first. Everything else falls into its divine place when you prioritize your focus on God. Anytime we see repetition in the Bible, I want you to take notice because it's there on purpose. In verses 5 and 7, God tells his people these words, Think carefully about your ways. God is so patient with his people, which I think gets overlooked a lot in the Old Testament. We think, oh, they made him mad. Strike down. You know? we, we think that like, God is just angry all the time. No, God is so patient, and he displays that often. He's so patient. He wants them to succeed. He wants them to notice where they're wrong and course correct. If you're going to be busy, be busy for God. When you find yourself with a list that doesn't include anything that's spiritually purposeful or enriching, take a step back and give yourself a moment to reconsider the why question. Think carefully about your ways. Think carefully about your ways. Shake yourself into some reset priorities where God takes the top tier and then take action. But first, think carefully about your ways because God's been patient with us for a long time. Just like, think about it. Haggai 1.12 says this, And Zerubbabel, the high priest of Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God and the words of their prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him. So the people feared the Lord. They thought carefully about their ways, and the only acceptable response to God's direction was obedience. I tell my kids this all the time. If I ask you to do something, it's with reason and for a purpose, and I expect that you will do it. And when I ask, I want you to do it then. And when I ask, I want you to do it with a great attitude, not out of blind terror sometimes, uh, but, but because I'm your father and because the only reasonable thing you do as my child in this moment is trust that I have your best interests at heart. Now go clean that room. But it's that obedience that proves that children trust their parents. They might not understand. They might not even agree with me, but they do trust me. And the faithfulness to that trust results in obedience. The only acceptable response to God's direction is obedience. And I hate that I'm saying this because my mom would say this to me all the time, but delayed obedience is disobedience. I would imagine most of us know exactly what God wants us to do. You know the kind of person he's called you to be. You know the steps that you need to take to be closer to him. Most of us already know. It's, it's not a secret. And as you wait for the time to be right, for your will to align with God's will, you're living in this gray zone of delayed obedience. Great intentions that one day you'll be renewed to a fruitful relationship with God, but postponed all the way to the point of disobedience. Church family, you don't have to wait any longer. If you're putting ultimatums on your obedience, you know, when my schedule calms down, I'll settle into a routine of quiet time. Or when my job gets less stressful, then I'll work on having more Christ-like responses to my coworkers. Or when my kids are out of the house, then I'll find time to get engaged in discipleship. Listen, your schedule is never going to calm down. Your job will only get more stressful, and your kids are never going to move out of your house. And your intention to delay your obedience will only end up being disobedience. You don't have to wait any longer. It's not in God's will or purpose for you to wait. The response of the people to Haggai's message was to 
obey. And God's response to their obedience was both a declaration of his presence and a movement sourced from his presence. This is his response, starting in verse 13. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. The Lord roused the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. What did they do? They began work on the house of the Lord of armies, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. You know, I talked earlier about like insignificant moments being a big part of the big story. Haggai's message to the people got them on track, restored their intention to follow God. It's just one little thing that we just kind of forget about, but without Haggai's message, they never would have followed in the way that God wanted them to follow. And so, the first sermon concludes. It's part one. We're getting through two today. (laughs) The next one's short, don't worry about it. The people get to work. So he's done with the sermon, the people get to work, they obey, and they begin rebuilding. The second sermon begins, not even a month later, which I kind of love, uh, and the work has just kind of come to a screeching halt. They're like, well, that was fun for a minute, but no more. We're done. The people are discouraged. The people are unhappy. Because what they've done is they've become stuck in a comparison game of the former temple's beauty and glory. They remember the great achievement of King Solomon. They dwell on this memory of its gold and its riches and its beauty. They've barely started work. And the foundation that they've built doesn't even compare to their former memory. So what's the use? If we can't make it as good as it was, then there's no point. So they stop building. They're just completely paralyzed by discouragement. And what I love about Haggai's prophetic word from God himself is that it illuminates and it illustrates that God knows where his people are. He knows how his people feel. He understands where they're coming from, but he still gives them a push to move forward. Haggai 2 verse 1 says, On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel. Who is left among you? who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? Even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all the people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work, for I am with you. The declaration of the Lord of armies. This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt and my spirit is present among you. Don't be afraid. The book of Haggai, as short as it is, refers to God as the Lord of armies. Other translations say the Lord Almighty. 14 times. This reference is important because God will go to fight for his people. He is completely in control. And this is the God who is still with you now. He is true, and he is alive, and he is mighty, and he is in ultimate control. So be strong. Get to work, because I'm with you. Work, because I'm with you. Even though his people don't have a temple, God is with them. Don't lose sight of the beautiful picture that God would fight armies for the depth of a relationship with his people. His presence was an encouragement to them to not give up. This promise is repeated time and time again all through scripture. Moses said the burning bush, don't be discouraged, Moses, I am with you. Joshua taking up the mantle of leadership, don't worry, Joshua, I am with you. Mary finding that she is to have the newborn king that they've all been waiting for, don't be afraid, Mary, I am with you. Think about Jesus. When he gives his disciples the very purpose for the church and the mission that we are still following today, remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. You're being distracted by all the little details. Remember who God is. 
Remember what he is doing. Remember what he will do. And stay focused on his presence, even though you've disobeyed. Even though there's not a completed temple in front of you, I am with you. God's people thought, oh, well, we're just building a building. And even further, they thought that the building that they were building would just never measure up to their expectations or to their memory, but God knew what was coming. God knew that one day, everything and everyone would behold his presence in an entirely different way. Let's read this because it's wild. The Lord of armies says this, Once more, in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, said the Lord of armies. The silver and gold belong to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, said the Lord of armies. I will provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. God is at work establishing his presence in an eternal way. God's chosen people will one day come into his eternal temple and it would be filled not with paintings and tapestry and gold and silver, but instead with the glory of God and his new creation. And that is far more beautiful than anything you could build right now. Look ahead. Don't be so short-sighted that you lose sight of what is to come. The people are kicking themselves for what they see as inferior to the past. God is looking forward to an eternal future where his glory would be forever on display and his presence would forever be with his people. Because remember, that's really what he wants. It's not really about the temple. It's about being with his people. What will come will outdo everything that has been. God's vision is eternal. And he wants you to have that same perspective. What you see now and what you're comparing it to is not what is to come. You might feel lost, even exiled. You might feel unworthy or incapable, too apathetic or too far gone with your priorities. But remember God's word to you. Don't give up. Be strong. He is with you. Can we bow our heads together as we reflect? First off, it's important for me to preface by saying, Haggai is a message to God's people. It speaks directly to the challenges that God's people specifically face. And if you're not one of God's people, if you don't know what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I hope you listen very closely right now. He wants to know you. and He wants to be with you. He wants to guide you and comfort you and help you and strengthen you. He has incredible plans for you if you were to only follow his voice and choose to walk in his life. We'll have several deacons in the back of the, back of the room. If you want to talk with someone about what it means to know Jesus and have him know you, I want to challenge you to make your way to the back of the room now. We're not going to embarrass you. We want to be a resource to you. Now is the time. For those of you who are God's people, Haggai tells a story of God's people prioritizing their comfort over God's commands. It tells the story of God's people becoming apathetic to the calling that God placed over their lives. It tells the story of people's priorities being out of sync with God's perfect order. And if we're honest with ourselves, in many ways, it tells our story. Haggai also tells the story of God's people finally choosing to obey of God being dramatically and wonderfully patient with his people, of God being faithful to guide with his presence until the very end. And if we're serious with God, it can also tell the next stage of our story. Ask yourself this question. When was the last time I felt excited and refreshed in my personal spiritual walk? 
When did you last like wake up with your mind tuned to God and go forward with the day considering his glory before anything else? If it's been a while, maybe consider your state of spiritual apathy. Are you coasting? Are you relying on God's salvation as protection without just trusting in its purpose? Can we together make this our prayer? God, restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. I'm serious. Right now, in your heart and silently within yourself, repeat these words after me and make them your prayer of commitment today. God, restore the joy of your salvation to me. Sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. And maybe together we can get out of this cycle that we're stuck in where we're just used to it. Have you stopped lately to consider your priorities? Have you become so busy with life maintenance that you just neglected to use your life as a marked display of the gospel message, using your life as panels covered with the gospel? Today's your chance. Today is the day to ask for forgiveness from God. Today is the day to take inventory of what's on your plate and make some adjustments in order to give God the precedence he deserves. Are you delaying your obedience to him? Do you have every intention of getting on the right path, just not yet? This is the moment you've been waiting for. Haggai is a sign that you need to make a move. Go forward with an act of obedience. Live the life that you were intended to live and then persevere through the obstacles that come your way and don't be crippled and don't be discouraged. What is to come is far more glorious than what you've built for yourself here. Move forward with the understanding and the peace that God's presence is here to guide you. The temple proves to us that God wants to be with his people. He is with you. Let's pray together, God. Forgive us. Forgive us for so often taking advantage of and taking for granted your incredible goodness. We've built lives that glorify ourselves instead of honoring you. We've prioritized everything that comforts us. We've built shrines to ourselves and we've pushed you further and further down our list. God, forgive us. We want to honor you. We want to obey you. We want to glorify you. We want to experience your presence in miraculous and wonderful ways and we, are no, we know, we know with all certainty that you are faithful and you are trustworthy to provide it. Thank you for wanting to be with your people. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. And this is all in the wonderful name of Jesus that I pray.